You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. The year is 3129. Mankind is adrift in the stars. Giant spaceships hurdle the last of humanity towards their destiny, whatever it may be. Only one thing can keep them going and power these great ships. will feed the minds and spirits of these people. And that is the last brewing company to survive in the future, Circle Brewing. So great was their product that they indeed became the legendary Earth Brewers. But, you know, it's right now. 2018, or maybe 2019, depending on when you're listening to this, and you can get Circle Brewing right by going into Austin, by stopping into their uh, brewery on Breaker Lane, or you can get it in convenience stores where there's all sorts of good stuff. Uh, Martin, you're from the future. What do you think? Well, I tell you, Austin is a city with no shortage of breweries. But this is some of the best I've ever had. Well, there you go. You, you can't ask somebody who's going to give you a truer thing about beer than Mr. Martin Thomas because he's an alcoholic. <laughs> Hey everybody, it is time for another episode of Digital Noise, where we review the latest, or at least somewhat recent, uh, Blu-ray and DVD releases. Joining me this week as my co-host is Sir John Golson. Yes, sir, I've been knighted. Well, I've decided it's a thing now that I can knight people. Like, I, I, I'm the queen of one of us done <laughs> so I'm going to do knighting as, as where I deem appropriate. Thank you. I'm not sure it's quite as honor as much an honor as the British Empire, but you know, sure, why not? Um, I, I, I take a a can of delicious beer and tap you on each shoulder of it and, and call you Sir John Golson. Which, by the way, said delicious beer is from our new beer sponsor. Like that segue? Yes, <laughs> Circle Brewing Company. Um, big thanks to these guys. They really believe in us, and I was so excited to hook up with them because I'm a big fan of their beers. I've been drinking them quite a while. I've been drinking them quite for so long that the guys at my local bar make fun of me for being unimaginative and never drinking anything but the one beer by them, which is their Circle Blur half of my set. I'm like, nah, I know what I like. Just give me that one. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm actually really glad that they opened this up because they, they give us uh, bunches of beer for all these crew who come in here to drink. And they mix it up. So I've gotten to try all the different beers. And to be honest, I pretty much like everything. I was surprised the degree to where everyone who I thought I'd know what their favorite was liked something different than what I thought they would like. Uh, my second favorite is their their uh, Tuxedo IPA, which is a black IPA. It's, oh my God, it's so delicious. And it's not like death hoppy like you usually get from IPAs. It's actually the malts balance out the hops. It's quite good. But you can get them at, at your local convenience store. Hell, I see... 7-Elevens and like little just tiny marts around that now have craft beers that carry Circle Brewing. Or you can visit them here in Austin at 2340 West Breaker Lane, Suite B, uh, at 78758. Uh, area code that's right near the domain, but they're in a big parking lot. There's, don't worry, there's plenty of parking. No, there's never not parking because they're like the one place that's, that, that's like them in the middle of a big industrial park. So <laughs> come the time they open, everyone else is closed. So you can just. Come in there, drink, nice patio, everything. Thanks to them. Also, uh, 
Please think about becoming a subscriber if you haven't already. That is what keeps this site going. We cannot do this without the subscribers. That is the the core source of the income for the site. That's the number one source, and the site is very expensive to maintain, not the least of which, for me, this is like an 80-hour-a-week job, pretty much. It's It's very hard for me to sneak in work on the side to make extra money just to make ends meet, and this is how I do it, and I can't keep doing it without the help of you guys. So please think about being a subscriber. There's four different tiers out there with lots of bonus content that you can check out and enjoy. Uh, but but uh, It's a holiday season, too, so it's a great time to ask somebody else to pay for your subscription. It really is. It's a, it's a great time to go, what do I want for Christmas? I want a subscription to <laughs> one of us.net. Exactly. What? Wow, I hadn't even thought mm-hmm. of that, right? We should have gift cards. <laughs> and someday t-shirts. I swear, Matt Frank told me he's working on a design right now. So so those t-shirts, yes, they actually are coming eventually. I know, you're like, I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, <laughs> but let's go into the reviews of these home releases, which if you actually go onto the page itself on one of us.net, you'll see images of all all the separate uh, movies and TV shows that we're talking about. You can click on said image. It will bring you to Amazon.com page. And from there, if you buy it, we get a nice little kickback, which is cool. In fact, if you start from one of our links and buy anything, we get a nice little kickback out of whatever you end up buying. So please use our Amazon links. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to sell you guys on everything. So let's just talk about what you came here to talk about, which is the movies. Uh, We are going to start off with a film that when I first saw this movie, Gosford Park, back in 2001, I was not of the right age to appreciate it at all. I was like, what the fuck is this? I was expecting something a lot more Agatha Christie-ish and like, like... Ten Little Indians or something like that. I was, like, ready for this thing, like, murders to start popping up left and right. And the way it was marketed, it was like, oh, it's like a – it's like that. And what you get is something that – with Robert Altman uh, making a film that is basically Downton Abbey but with a murder. And sure enough, the the writer of this went on to be the guy who created Downton Abbey. So you could say that Downton Abbey is basically the television adaptation of Gosford Park for all extents and purposes it – Kind of is. In fact, he originally was looking into calling it Gosford Park when he first came up with it. So kind of funny. But this is Arrow doing a a very uh, fancy re-release of this film that I am super glad I got a chance to reevaluate. I found that over time, the Altman films that are unquestionably looked at with love, I enjoy less. And the ones that were a little more obscure, people forget were Altman, I've started to enjoy more. Yeah. Um, and this is one of those those movies that, although this was well thought of, people always forget it's a Robert Altman film. It's it's not thought first and foremost as a movie by him. And I think maybe that's just because of this really great cast of British actors in this thing. Um, but do you want to describe the plot? Oh, uh, there is a uh, there's a shooting party. Um, that they've invited a bunch of uh, friends and acquaintances and, and friends of friends to come out to this manor and go shoot guns in the in the backyard. Um, that is taking place concurrently while we see the house servants and valets and butlers and everything sort of prepare for this big house party. And then about an hour in, there's a murder. It, I thought that... I I thought, having never seen it before, that that would be something that happened way earlier. Mm-hmm. But no, it's a good hour into the movie before uh, before there's a murder, and then it becomes it is it is a murder mystery. But I would not say that the structure of it is a murder mystery. No, the whole movie is kind of relaxed and conversational, and I think even after the murder happens, 
uh, it, rem- it it maintains the same tone that it had for the first hour, uh, which again is for for something where they're trying to figure out who did the murder is still very relaxed and conversational. Uh, it's interesting that whole first hour, to some extent, not in your typical murder mystery way, but is setting up threads so that when the murder happens, you're like, "Wow, this could be anyone here. Everyone had a reason to hate this guy, mm-hmm. or at least dislike him." And more so than that, though. You're slowly figuring out who your protagonists actually are, and what is definitely an ensemble film, but who the primary characters. Oh yeah, gosh, we've got we've got Clive Owen, we've got Jeremy Northam, we've got Chris Scott Thomas, Michael Gambon, uh, Ryan Felipe, Maggie Smith, Smith, um, and that's uh, Bob Balaban, who apparently uh, is part of the reason this movie existed. That he went to Altman and said, "Hey, I want to work with you on something," and this is what they cooked up. Um, He plays an American movie. Uh, maker, yeah, um, who has brought the, the the one guy based on a real person, Jeremy <laughs> Northam's character, uh, the actor Ivor Novello, yeah, uh, who and we haven't heard of now, but apparently in his time was a big star, <laughs> uh, has brought him along for the ride. I didn't think I'd like this. Uh, I thought it was going to be way more Merchant Ivory than it actually was, and mm-hmm. I found it sort of. It's it is it's not. It's lightly comedic. In ways that I didn't expect. Mm-hmm. It has a light touch uh, that I didn't anticipate. Um, I'm not like a big Merchant Ivory guy. I'm not like a big stuffy, yeah, me like neither. drawing room, there's, there's um, one or British two. class wars. There's one or two of them I quite enjoy. But, yeah. But overall, a lot of the ones that everyone goes, oh, no, that's a classic. I'm like, is it though? <laughs> but this, I thought the characters were really interesting. The dynamics between the characters were interesting. Uh, and again, it has a, it has a, um, I don't want to oversell it as a comedy, but it does have a lightly comedic touch to it where, uh, I felt like that really helped flavor it a lot. Yeah. A lot of the dialogue is quite funny as you're watching some of these characters and realizing what their motivations for even being there is and watching them be foiled. Yeah. There's something, there's something about it that almost plays like an art house version of Clue. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, totally focus like strongly on the the, uh, the art house part of that, but yes, yeah. <laughs> that that is there. I don't. I mean, this is not a lot of Altman films can be a little confusing, even feel chaotic. It's very intentional, but this one is so tightly structured and so blocked that I never got the feeling of chaos. I'm always able to follow all these different threads of what's going on with all these characters, um, and it helps that most of these actors are pretty familiar. You know, mm-hmm. you're like, okay, I, I definitely know who, you know, all these people are. But I think in the end, it's Kelly McDonald who becomes kind of the centerpiece of the whole film. And she certainly doesn't seem like she's going to be in the first half hours. So. Yeah. Uh, and I love that it's sort of this ass backwards way of setting her up as the detective in the movie. <laughs> you know, and you fall into it as before. It's not really until she's kind of solved the, the, the mystery that you're like, oh, Wait, she's the detective. <laughs> well, it's like you have uh, Stephen Fry as the actual detective, and, right. and again, to the film's humor, there's the a glass that he uh, knocked out of uh, the the murder victim uh, knocks a glass out of a servant's hand at one point and demands that she bring him something else and leave the glass there. Right. When the detectives are in the room, one of the detectives is like. Oh, there's broken glass here. And Stephen Fry is so oblivious, he goes, Oh, someone will be in to clean it up. <laughs> Not thinking about, like, oh, it could be evidence, it could be a clue, it could be, like, something related to the crime. He's like, No, no, they'll take care of that. Well, because they set you up, he's got all, all these eccentric mannerisms, and you're like, This is a classic Agatha Christie detective. But no, he's 
kind of a bumbling idiot that's in awe he gets to hang out with all these rich people. Mm. <laughs> You're like, wow, that was not what I expected. Well, I actually came out of this quite enjoying it this second time around. I guess it really is a grown-up movie. Does that make me a grown-up now? It does make you a grown-up. Wow. I, I feel it means like you, you now have to drink your beer with one pinky raised in the air as right. well. It feels like I should call my mom and tell her, but then she'll probably want me to pay her back for lots of shit. <laughs> um, there's uh, some audio, co- three different audio commentaries here. One by Julian Fellows, one with uh, Robert Altman, Stephen Altman, and David Levy, and one uh, that's brand new to this release by Jeff Andrew and David Thompson, which is um, largely sort of like looking back sort of uh, historian take on it. Uh, there's cast and crew interviews. Um, there is a several archival featurettes on here. There's 20 minutes of deleted scene with a op- uh, with a uh, optional commentary by Robert Altman. So it's a really solid set. Mm-hmm. I, I highly recommend this film to, you know, I guess people who consider themselves grownups. I, I certainly get it. Like I said, it wasn't that long ago. I saw this. I was like, boring next. <laughs> so if that's you, you know, wait another 10 years and give it another shot. Yeah, I just, you know, it, I saved it for last because I thought out of everything in the stack, I was like, uh, this one looks like the least likely to align to my personal taste, and I actually really liked it. So. Well, uh, Kino Lober, uh, and that was uh, Gosford Park, by the way, once again. Uh, Kino Lober has put out another Altman film, another one that was definitely, the, like, that I always <sighs> forgot was an Altman film. Yeah. Um, called The Gingerbread Man, that's based on a discarded John Grisham manuscript. I'm not yes. sure what that means exactly, but... I, I think it's evident in the film itself. It's kind of half-assed. It's a little bit like... What it feels like to me is a Grisham was writing something that wanted to be more like a traditional noir mm-hmm. and at some point went, nah, I'm just going to make and a like, novel. And yeah, and then didn't, didn't turn it into a novel, didn't do anything with it. And when Grisham was red hot and Altman sort of, you know, in the 90s, Altman had the player and he had a sort of a career renaissance um, because of the player. And so you have this director that's a name and you have this writer that's a name and it's in the service of this movie that plays a little bit like a Southern noir. It has some things in it that are very like Southern lawyer tropes that are very Grisham, but overall plays a little bit more like a noir where it's a lawyer that gets in over his head with like a femme fatale type character who has her own motivations for like involving him with her legal matters that involve her, her creepy swamp dad played by Robert <laughs> Duvall. Um, That's a uh, Kenneth Branagh is a lawyer and Beth Davids who I was always like, you know, I always thought that was the actress who was going to go further than she yeah. did. But. Yeah, it's, uh, I found it altogether kind of half-assed. I, I, and the, the, the movie screened poor. I always wondered what the deal was with this movie, and it wasn't until this release that I actually read up on it that apparently it screened poorly. They took it away from Altman. They tried to recut it. They gave it an all-new score, and they gave it more action beats or tried to give it more action beats so that it was in line with the, the Grisham brand at the time. Right. And that tested worse than the Altman screening. So they went back to the the Altman thing and then dumped it because the president of Polygon at that point was so pissed off that Altman didn't deliver the film that he thought that they were getting. Right. That uh, that it got a dump. It got a studio. It got a it got a release dump, which is why I always thought it was so weird for it to have a name cast. You've got Branna, Robert Downey Jr., Tom uh, Berenger. Yeah, Tom Berenger, Robert Duvall is in this. And Darryl, I remember yeah. even at the time working at the video store, and I was I was working at a theater and a video store at this time, that it didn't play theaters, and then it just kind of appeared on video at sort of the height of, like, Pelican Brief, The Client, The Firm, like, all these 90s Grisham movies were all blockbusters, 
except this one. And didn't really know, you know, what the deal was until now, which is that the studio didn't like it straight up. I'll be honest. I actually like this a little bit better than you. It's definitely its biggest problem is that its plot gets really silly towards the end. There's a lot of like, I'm having a hard time believing this is a thing that could happen. But uh, Altman brings classes up the joint to some degree. It, it reminds me of a TNT movie. Yeah. I don't know. That's such a specific but also vague description. Like, there's something specific about it where I was like, I could see this playing on TNT all the freaking time. Now, I don't know how to define that other than it just seems like the kind of movie that would always be on TNT. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah, I, I think Braddock is... Maybe overplaying it with his southern lawyer shtick here, and it comes off as a little silly. And I think you keep going, you know, us knowing now later that Robert Downey Jr. is like going to be one of the biggest breakout stars in Hollywood eventually. But here, when he was still in the middle of his drug and alcohol problems, you keep looking at him like, when are you going to be a bigger part of this movie? I I really kind of want to follow you, because he actually is playing a fun, interesting character that you'd like to know more about. Um, Forgot to mention, Famke Jansen is in this as well. Yeah. Uh, I think there's enough going on here and enough, like, there's there's style to burn for, in the way that Altman shoots it, but none of it feels Altman-esque. It's definitely kind of a work for hire, but even he can't help himself and, and put in the effort to make it look good. And I think it does really look good. It just suffers from being kind of a silly story. <laughs> that, that Yeah, it's like that TNT. It's that one that you're like, yeah, this will go by fast, and it'll be kind of a good Sunday afternoon, what the fuck else am I going to do movie? <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh... I didn't think it was bad. I just, I just think it's kind of just uh, there, and it is like it is sort of perfect cable afternoon watching. Um, it, 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 I can't imagine theatrically how it would have played or if I would have walked out satisfied at all. But it certainly, I think, I think it's more forgiving on the small screen. What's your favorite Grisham film? You know, I've only seen The Firm once. For a long time, A Time to Kill was. Yeah. But the last time I watched Time to Kill, the perspective that it presented felt so dumb to me. Okay. But I liked it for really, I liked it for a really long time. I think my politics and my worldview have changed to the point where it feels very much like a movie about race for old white people. Um, and... So, but I would have said a time to kill. I'd like to, I should probably revisit the firm. I, I would imagine the firm holds up pretty well, but I, but I've only seen it once. Yeah. So. I remember seeing it. I think I've seen it twice and both times I liked it. I just didn't love it, but I remember really loving a time to kill, but my God, it's been forever. Since and time it. to kill was time to kill. Last time I watched it was pretty, it was way more at the time that I saw it. Like I loved it, loved it. Mm-hmm. And the last time I watched it was probably about two years ago. And it played way more melodramatically than I remembered. And the stuff at the end of him winning the case by putting it in the context of um, what if they were white is... Troublesome? Is weird in that it still leaves... Like, it shouldn't... That's sort of a rah-rah moment where it's like it shouldn't matter. It should be like, well, they're human beings, and they have to, and and for him to have to couch it in like, now imagine because he gives a big speech at the ending and goes, now imagine she's white, and that's like the big oh moment. <laughs> it feels and very it's like, dated now. And now I'm watching it and I'm like, this does this is not for me. Hmm. This is for uh, 
Uh, this is this is for you back then. It's for me back then when I was younger and, and dumber, or <laughs> if I'm older and more entrenched in my whiteness. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, but back to the Gingerbread Man, which only has one extra, which is audio commentary by Robert Altman, um, but which is a little spare. But you know, it's there. Oh, that's interesting. Since he had such a contentious relationship with the film, does he talk about that? Did you, did you listen uh, oh, to it? Uh, I listened to parts of it. I always do that thing where, like, if it's a, a part where there's no dialogue for a while, I'll go ahead and switch over to the commentary yeah. track sometimes, which I did a couple times on this. But um, he talks a lot about how uh, bad he felt for Robert Downey Jr., who was in the middle of being in a full-on attack by the oh. media at that point. Mm. So, um, and uh, definitely calling him out as the best actor he was working with in this movie, which I'm sure didn't make Kenneth Browning feel great. But, yeah. <laughs> but whatever. He's got enough... Uh, self-confidence to go for, for years. Well, that was the Gingerbread Man. The next one, we're taking a look at a what you might say is the most obscure or at least least well-thought-of movie by one of the greatest directors alive. That's uh, Ingmar Bergman's The Serpent's Egg. The only time he worked with a Hollywood production company to make a film. The only the only time he went to Hollywood said, yes, I will take your money and we'll make a film under your production banner. Um, very surprisingly... And this movie, which came out in 1977, had David Carradine and Liv Ullman in it. Um, it's an odd fucking film that at first I was like, okay, well, this is like, I mean, it's World War II Germany. Things are just starting to ramp up over there. You know, we're getting towards the Night of the Long Knives. It's going to be on the way here. Uh, David Carradine is a uh, expatriate American who's living over there, who's traveling with a circus act. He's a complete alcoholic and and Jewish, which is not obviously the best time to be in Germany right then. He's in total denial about what's going on around him or even of his own Judaism. Uh, and he gets home one night to find out that his brother, who was also in the circus, has killed himself. Uh, he ends up getting involved with a lot of weird people. Liv Ullman is kind of the love-hate interest in here. Um, there's a lot of just sort of meandering around in this film and dealing with various oddball characters and this guy's extreme alcoholism and the grunginess of this world. But where this goes in the third act is like, what? Like, it turns into a bizarre, like, boys from Brazil conspiracy thriller. I was like, what is going on in this movie? Like, like, oh, secret German experiments going on with crazy shit. I was like, what? Okay, did we just see... Did that movie even know that's where it was going? Because it feels like it had no idea it was going there. I don't know. What do you think of this one? I didn't have it in the stack. What? You oh, didn't? That's right. That's okay. This one to you. I'm sorry. You were. That's why you kept looking at me crazy. Um, yeah, I forgot because this is a late coming one, but that was coming out sooner. I didn't see it. It's. I don't care for this movie. I'll be very honest. I really did not care for this. I think there's some gorgeous shots in this thing. It, but most of it is just a series of events happening that you're constantly like, why the fuck? When did, did it that come just out? Happen. 1977. 77. So it's one of. It's it's his career was winding down at that point. Yeah, right. And it's and like I said, wildly thought of, widely thought of as his worst film, while still got generally okay reviews. They're like, well, I mean, let's not throw it under the bus completely. There are some nice things to like about this. This isn't a horrible movie. I think kind of is a horrible movie. I mean, yeah, sure, it's got some nice shots in it, but. Carradine's not great in it. Ullman is wildly miscast. You're like, why are you playing this sort of like hooker showgirl part that you're just not the right person for at all? Um, 
and the whole wackiness of the, the Nazi experiments thing and how that ties into essentially explaining why everything in this movie has happened is just kind of laughable, quite frankly. I mean, uh, as certain most people, the only people who are really going to go out of the way to see this are, in fact, Bergman scholars. Yeah. <laughs> people who consider themselves just the hugest fans and have to be completists or arguably David uh, uh, Carradine ones. I, I just... I wanted to like this. I was all in. I was like, wow, I like these actors. I love Bergman films. Um, it's interesting that, like I said, it's an American production company, the only one he had done. But, man, it's just hard to follow what he was trying to get get to here. Uh, this is a Blu-ray release by Arrow. There's a commentary track with David Carradine. There's a 25-minute Bergman's Egg, which is an appreciation of a, a critic here, which a talking head feature, which, like, reportedly, I didn't l- listen to watch it, but... Uh, the reviews I've seen give it a lot of criticism going, man, you are stretching real hard trying to be complimentary towards this film. Uh. <laughs> um, there's an archival piece with Liv Ullman and David Carradine. There's another archival piece with author Mark Gervais, which is about German expressionism, uh, which this film is definitely chasing after a lot of those elements, especially in lighting. Uh, and a nicely uh, nice insert booklet here. But yeah, not really my thing. Uh, we'll go on to something else that uh, is from another very w- well-appreciated director, uh, Hirokazu Koreda, who... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. That last one, again, was The Serpent's Egg. <laughs> I keep forgetting to do that. I'll get it. Uh, this guy had done... Uh, 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 this year, he's got one of the best foreign film uh, movies, Shoplifters, which actually I enjoyed quite a bit, as well as uh, previously he won the jury prize at Cannes for Like Father, Like Son. So one of those directors is very well thought of. This movie, The Third Murder, over here kind of just got shit out on Blu-ray. There wasn't much of a theatrical run for it, despite the fact it came out the same year as Shoplifters. Um, but it's a movie that feels like it's going to be a more, on some level, traditional, like, sort of legal murder mystery type thing, but ends up being really kind of a, a thoughtful character piece that goes to places I'm not sure I was completely with the movie on. Uh, but why don't you describe... The, the plot to this one. Uh, there's a guy who's a career c- criminal who's um, the film opens with him uh, going out in a field and killing someone and setting the body on fire. And it's about his legal team and how quickly he acknowledges his crime. Uh, it freely admits to the murder and <clears throat> them kind of backtracking and starting to put pieces together that, it may not be as cut and dry as what their defendant um, thinks it will be. Mm-hmm. I think his he's sort of set it up where it's like, okay, well, I've killed somebody else, so it's all good. Try me and put me away because this is what I do. I kill people. And, and I think they get a whiff pretty quickly that something something's not quite kosher about his story, that it's not as simple cut and dry. And I think it's because of how willing he is to just face those facts. Mm -hmm. So they start digging and start turning up um, a fairly complicated, uh, a fairly complicated backstory and plot uh, to the murder. Um, It's almost like a police procedural, uh, except that you're not dealing with police. You're dealing with lawyers. You're dealing with like a legal team that is trying to do this for their own, almost for their own peace of mind. I mean, they could go in there, just armed with a confession and and go to trial, but they they are seeking out more information because they feel like their client's not being one hundred percent honest with them, and he's not. Um, 
it's good. It's well shot. It's well acted. It's got interesting characters. Um, it's the kind of movie that you could easily see them bringing over here and doing like an English language remake. Yeah. Um, I mean, chasing Oscar chasing though. Yeah. I think for sure. This isn't like a thriller. No, 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 no. I don't want to confuse people and think that's the kind of movie. Like it turns out that he's even more of a serial killer than they thought. Oh no, no, no. It's not like that at all. He's, he is, uh, he's positioned himself through his life to kind of, decide that he's going to execute this plan and sort of take the fall for it. Um, and, and again, it's the, it's the lawyers figuring out, uh, why is he doing this? What's going on? Who, how many parties does this actually involve? Um, it's a very empathic movie. It's, it's very like about noble sacrifice and, and mm-hmm. just humans at their most complicated, <laughs> you know, emotionally, there's some stuff in here that, yeah, I was like, maybe just because I'm like, I feel like there would have been a better way to handle this than the route this guy chooses to go down. But, like, it does make for a very, it's because I, I, you know, I mean, I like to think of myself as relatively em- empathetic. I ain't as empathetic as this guy, but maybe that was the problem. I was like, come on, man. There's a point you go. You had to have been able to figure out another way around the, the way you chose. Yeah. <laughs> um but it is interesting, and it does keep you guessing. And like, I think the number one thing is so well acted. It's so well shot. It's just gorgeous cinematography in this thing that I, I really do overall recommend it. Uh, there's a 38-minute bonus feature, Tony Raines, who is an Asian cinema expert uh, on it, uh, where he uh, talks for 38 minutes about the this film, uh, talks about the Japanese legal system and its history and the ways in which... Because this is definitely designed to for an American audience who don't understand the Japanese legal system, like the way is importantly in terms of this film how it differs from our own um, and things like that. And then there is a 30-minute making of the third murder uh, narrated by uh, uh, Ichikawa Mikako uh, who plays uh, the, uh, the prosecution lawyer in here. Um, and there's introductions for of cast members, there's behind-the-scenes image gallery, there's trailers and TV shots, uh, TV spots, and a booklet, which is actually a solid amount of extra features for a film that is really super obscure. <laughs> you know, I think more people deserve to see this, but it feels like the sort of thing that only people who go like get that new, uh, film movement streaming service are ever going to watch. Yeah. You know, which is a shame. I think this is genuinely a, a good little film. That is the third murder. Now I'm going to say this next one is probably my least favorite thing of what we reviewed. Cause I just, I just did not care for it. Uh, it is the movie, which is only out on DVD, not Blu-ray agony. Um, mm, yeah. Based on a true story about a young man who killed and dismembered and hid the parts of his girlfriend in Germany. And to this day, it's still a question, why did you do it? They don't know why he did it. Um, and this is kind of an exploration of that. But if there's any mystery, it's that trying to figure out which of the two protagonists in this movie is going to be the guy who is the killer. You know it's based on that. It starts launching with that information. But the actual murder doesn't happen until the very end of the film. And it's watching these two guys, one of which is kind of a, you know, a, from a, it seems like he's from a better family, better household, but he's he's creepily quiet and meditatively so, and uh, does in fact get a girlfriend early on that seems to have a a, a relationship with with um, mutual strains of of S and M in it, 
you know, nothing really crazy, light S&M. And then the other one is this young guy uh, who is just kind of a, a very angry young man who has just sprung from prison, dumped back into lower class society, who's really hostile. He's always starting fights, always wishing to find someone to start fights with. He's an alcoholic. He's a real, he's a real mess. Uh, seems like, despite the other guy having a girlfriend being the more obvious choice to be the killer, I'll be honest... <clears throat> I'm not really sure what this movie was trying to get at, quite frankly. I, I watched the whole thing and went, wow. So that was a thing that I just saw, and I feel like you want to be saying something about class and strata, but I'm not really sure what it is. What do you think? Yeah, it's um, it sort of fills in the gaps with a lot of like portraits of sort of toxic masculinity um, without really saying anything or adding to any greater conversation about it. It's just sort of like this slice of life sort of thing, but it's not, but it wasn't, it also wasn't relatable to me. Mm -hmm. Neither, neither one of the protagonists were necessarily relatable to me. Yeah. And so it was just, um, it was just kind of stagnant. Um, it was having seen some really wretched, uh, German films about <laughs> killing of loved ones and, uh, you know, toxic masculinity. I did appreciate that this was a little more artful and restrained it's than very restrained than what I may have expected going in. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I particularly liked it. I think it's, uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I could I could tell you who this is for. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That's like, exactly I'm not, my thought on it. I could, who are you making this movie for? Who is going to be entertained by this film? Yeah, I don't know that I know who the audience is for it, um, like I would other movies. Uh, it's just sort of, hey, here's what toxic masculinity can look like, and yeah. then that's, that's kind of the movie. Yeah, once again, it's like, we see what you're doing. I'm just not sure why you're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, what is your end point? Yes, that's toxic masculinity. What are you saying about it? No idea. That it exists. Yeah. Duh. Uh, duh. Well, that was agony, um, and it was agony to watch for me. I admit, I know a lot of people, and I expect even you, may really have hated this movie, Luciferina, which is a terrible title, to be fair. It's mm. just awful. Uh, it implies a different movie than I think we end up getting as well, but I think this is the movie that went so many weird places and is so colorfully shot that I ended up going, I know people I would really recommend this movie to. Yeah. So there's these <laughs> sisters. This is another Argentinian horror film. Uh, it's been a year for Argentina and horror with uh, Terrified also coming out. Which is great. On uh, Yeah, Terrified is great. Um, but you have the story of these two sisters. Their parents have, like, this mysterious past. And one of the sisters... Uh, has been off at a, at a convent and she's coming home because the dad is sick and she has all these unreconciled feelings about them and never felt like they were honest with her. Say so dad and, is sick and mother is committed to us. Yeah. And yeah. so her, the, her friends are like, Hey, here's what we should do. We should all go out to the jungle and do a bunch of ayahuasca. And then that'll open your mind and you'll get the answers that you seek. Yeah. And which is the obvious answer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then a bunch of satanic shit happens. It's yeah. basically what happens from that point on. But I, I felt like if I had not seen a lot of horror films in my life, I would have appreciated this much, much more. But 
you know, the old Stuart Gordon saying is like, if you're going to make a movie, show me at least one thing I haven't seen before. Right. And I didn't feel like this gave me even one thing I hadn't seen in a, in, in some other form. Okay. Of movie I will say there is one thing specifically in here that I, I remember as I was watching, I was like, well, that's new. Okay. There's, there is a, I've never seen anyone have sex with someone while they were possessed, like a full on like nudity, very graphic sex scene w- to save them from being possessed. Yeah. They had to have sex with them. That's new. I've never seen that before. Okay. <laughs> but I don't know. There's a lot of very odd and interesting imagery in this. And yes, a lot of it is derivative from other things. It's more the way it's organized, the way it, it that, that was interesting than the specifics of what happens. You know, things don't happen in the order I would expect them to happen. And it's just odd. And maybe it's just because it's Argentinia, Argentinia, Argent- Argentine that, uh, that it is playing with different instincts for film than your traditional American horror. But I did feel like it, it went off the reservation into some strange places here and there. I mean, not, visually, I thought this was interesting. I don't think this is anything anyone is going to consider to be a masterpiece, but it does feel like one of those weird little films you discover on shot shutter and go, that was weird, but kind, kind of cool. They so apparently this is the first of a planned trilogy as well. Oh, okay. Uh, that they're going to make a couple more. There's like a title card at the beginning that hints at some greater mythology. Um, and, and it's it's not. It is competently made. It is it's slick across the board from effects to performances and everything. It's slick across the board. It just never. Uh, I just I just never had that moment where it like clicked with me in the way that. You know, in the way the movies do, it just never, it never, um, it never grabbed me. I, I won't say it totally grabbed grabbed me either. I just, I really thought there was some enough stuff in here that is is if you are a huge horror fan to go, this is worth exploring just to see some of the weird avenues this chooses to tread. I looked on Letterbox to see what people's responses to, uh, and and they were varied. They were very mixed. Mm-hmm. So uh, so yeah, I would. I would at least tell people if you're curious about it to watch it because you may be, you may end up being one of the people that actually really enjoys it. Well, we're going to take a change of pace here for a second. That was Luciferina, by the way. Once again, that's from arts or art exploitation films. Um, we're going to take a break from the usual right here, and I'm going to be talking to someone else because Mr. John Golson has not been watching Westworld. We're talking to someone else who has been watching Westworld to talk about the brand new 4K and Blu-ray release of Westworld season two. Give a listen. So the guest I'm going to talk about, Westworld Season 2, is Martin Thomas, who, please, if you'll forgive him, he is suffering a bit from evil things in the air that are trying to kill him. Yeah, that's the that's the awesome way, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. How long did it take for for you after you got moved here before you started becoming allergic to the town? I had a, I had a good decade. Okay. That's good. That's yeah. better than most people. Yeah, it's better than most. Yeah. At that point, you think, I'm in the clear. Uh-huh. I'm <laughs> nope. untouchable. No, it's and, just building up. And then the worst thing <laughs> that you could be allergic to is cedar. Cedar, because it's oh, everywhere. Oh, wait. I was just, uh, I'm sorry. I was getting a coffee. Yeah, no, you're allergic to me. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, we're talking about Westworld Season 2. Um, and, and we got to visit Westworld. We did. <laughs> I mean, that was one of those things uh, Facebook put together, their little list of like, like, oh, here's your memorable photos from this year. and. Which was actually a pretty good montage of stuff like that was this year. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, I forgot. We went to go visit the South by Westworld experience, which was actually better than the second season of Westworld, I thought. <laughs> but, you know, hey. It was better than half the 
<laughs> second season of Westworld. Okay, agreed, agreed. Because um, I, I think it was partially, I was just so thoroughly in love with that whole first season. I thought it really worked well. And the second fe- season feels a little more disorganized, a little more, like, standalone-ish. Like, the best episode of the whole thing is practically a standalone episode altogether, which is the Native American episode. Right, in the right. It had, yeah, they had that phenomenal, uh, two or three uh, phenomenal standalone uh, episodes. The thing for me is, uh, I like, I talk about the second season being split in half. And it's not really, like, first half, second half. There's, like, first quarter, half, and then last quarter. Mm-hmm. And that half that's in the middle... I loved better than than the first season. Yeah, it was great. It's because finally, about five episodes in, it went, okay, you've been here long enough. This is what this is really all about. Yeah. And I said, thank you. Yep, I remember us talking about it. Going, <laughs> oh, man. I was like, are we going to spend another whole season just meandering about? <laughs> and then, yeah, they start giving it to you. They give you some really incredible like like episodes. They're like, wow, that was just, just cool all in of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, we finally get to see like an episode that's all set in Samurai World, yeah. which is like, wow, this is really fucking cool. Um, and then... In the third act, which is like, you know, the, like, what is it in, in, uh, uh, terms of, um, ratings, they call it, uh, the season when you try and make everything explode, basically, cause the, that's when they're doing the ratings. Oh, oh, uh, sweeps. Sweeps, yes. Uh, in sweep season for West Week, Westworld, it just got really dumb. Yeah. A lot of stuff that didn't make sense at all, where I was like, wait, what? Why would they do this? And a lot of stuff that was like, where I just kept going, Guys, you can't make us wait all season for a twist and go, oh, guess what? More of the main characters are actually robots. Uh, okay, that was the twist last time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you want to go, okay, I'm sorry, show of hands. Who here is not a robot? <laughs> right? No, no, no. You guys You're, are. You just you don't are, know it yet. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> with the first season, it's it's really well put together, but it's way too many episodes to get to that conclusion. Because so I was like, okay, so yes, the robots are going to go rogue. We almost kind of know that from the first episode. Well, I mean, we do because we've seen the movie Westworld. <laughs> right, right. But but also because you never have one of these stories with robots that are sentient where they don't go rogue. Sure. And 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 this thing it it beats the drum of the when is a, is a is a, a sentient inanimate object or not you know human object when does it cross over into being a real or or being uh you know a person. And it's almost like it was saying it as if it was being profound, like your friend who's smoking a lot of dope. Man. Yeah, man, but what if they were so sentient? <laughs> you built them with such a great AI that they were real. Now, do they get rights to? And you want to go, dude, you're not the first person to think of this. Right. As a matter of fact, everybody who tells a story about robots does the same thing. Yeah, all and the you- way back to the very first story about robots. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so... Make that point and move on to a new point. Well, they have the thing in here where it's like the, 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 you know, the, I suppose if you were to say there was a reveal other than, um, the, oh, more characters are actually robots. It's the whole thing. Like, okay. So what is the purpose of the park? Right. Why is this here? What is going on? And, you know, when you're just talking about memory scanning and all these things that ultimately I'm like, yeah, where it's like, oh, it's a, you watch the bonus features on there. It's like, it's a reflection of what's going on today with all these companies gathering your information and trying to get profiles on people and everything. I was like, but is it the same thing? They're talking about scanning people's brainwaves and memories and then creating duplicates of them. 
That's not really the same thing. It's it's not. I don't. I don't even really think the metaphor holds up. Uh, uh, Come on, man. What do you think Google's up to? Like, yeah, but they were doing it without them knowing. I was like, yeah, but wasn't the point so they could sell them immortality? I'm like, oh no, my privacy. <laughs> Plus, it's one of those things when it's revealed, it's like, man, that is so cool. I didn't realize this was leading to that. And you go for a while with the great episodes, but once the the quality of the episodes drop off, you stop to think, but this is a really elaborate plan for what what they're trying to do. I feel like there's a much simpler way to accomplish this. It is rather convoluted. And part of the problem is it seems like everybody had plans. And a lot of these plans started a long time ago. And people are trying to figure out the plans. And plans are currently playing out. And I'm not sure whose plan is whose plan. And they're all intertwining. Right. There's lots of secret rooms that nobody seemed to know were there that have special tech in them. And it's just, there's a point I really did just kind of lose the thread in the final act yeah. of this thing. I was like, okay, I just, I'm just kind of watching out of amusement at this point, but I certainly, it's hard to like, it's also hard to really connect with these characters who, like you said, are kind of reading sort of angry AI stuff right out of the oldest robot yeah. like writings playbook that exists. You're like, these guys were more interesting when they were questioning what is real as opposed to humans suck. How dare they create us and give us life? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Look what they did to us. Yeah. We give you life. I mean, we can always turn you off, I guess. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, you're upset. Yeah. It's I, I, uh, I, I I always thought I mean because so it's so much of it is is the rebellion and I know how how emotionally invested am I in a rebellion of cowboy robots you know it's like they always want you to be on somebody's side and I'm like but they are robots though right like none of them are real yeah. Well, I mean, I'm kind of, Johnny, Neil, and I had a big argument about this because I, you know, I read a lot of sci-fi and those said books we were talking about. And I think that genuinely there is a point where if something becomes sentient, it's real. End of story. It has just as much value as a human life does. It doesn't matter what it's made of. You know, if a dog sits up to you and starts talking and goes, hey, man, by the way. Are you more of a Plato guy or a Socrates guy? You're like, fuck, now we got to give this dog rights. Uh And you do. Sure. (laughs) And the same holds true for robots. They're just as real. And and I do like the idea that they explore the thing that, like, man, humans are are just a computer that's with lots of fucked up imperfections in them as well. I mean, God knows, the older we get, the more we become aware of the stuff in our own brains that keeps us from doing what we know has been good for us because it's just fucked up neural pathways. Yeah. Yeah. We're just on programs just like them. So I'm like, okay, I don't really, I never really understood that argument that they have no value because they're made of metal or whatever. Well, there's also that if you say you purchased a a machine Mm -hmm. that would not be cheap at all. Yeah. And it looked human and acted human. I don't think you're going to abuse that thing. I don't know. I mean, if it was, like, really sure, like, this was, like, this thing, there is no AI in this thing, this is just a program series of responses, end of story, that is not sentient in any way, then I'd be like, yeah, I'd fuck the hell out of that thing. <laughs> <laughs> Even if it said, please don't. 
Well, only if it, I programmed it to say please don't. Well, say uh, you didn't program it. Yeah, no. I mean, if it was one of those things where it was like it was saying that, I'd be like, yeah, I'd be like, whoa. 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 Uh, I gotta, sorry. I thought we, we were cool with this. I got to call the manufacturer. <laughs> <laughs> this was not covered by the warranty, I don't think. <laughs> and the, the, the funny thing to me was when this season was done, I was thoroughly of the impression that, oh, okay, the series is over. Yeah. It, 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 it felt has, like it could it, be. Yeah, it has an ending. She goes out into the real world and and whatever happens, happens. There's no reason for us to see this because we've seen it plenty. Right. But then, yeah, I get informed by everybody like, oh, dude, third season's coming. There's going to be 17 more seasons. <laughs> no, there won't be. It costs too much to do the show. I'm <laughs> sure there'll be it tops two to three more seasons. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not making the kind of money Game of Thrones made, which means, Ooh. which means two to three tops. <laughs> well, the, it, it's, you know what? What'll kill it is if it, if they strike the set. If they tear it down. Yeah, that's always the end. Now, if they're smart, they'll go like, well, we can still use this for Deadwood. Put True. Deadwood back on. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm. yeah, well, they are. They're filming it right now. Right. Yeah. But I'd like it if they kept going. But I guess we'll see. Maybe we'll see the movie and go, oh, God, bad call. They should have left it where it was. <laughs> but you never know. I, I like, honestly, I don't hate the season. It just found it disappointing. Mm. And there's so much brilliant mo- stuff in here, regardless of all my major complaints with it. Yeah. I mean, it is one of those shows that's like... That is kind of, it's less than the sum of its parts, but some of those parts are kind of awesome. And they're also gears. And, yeah. And little springs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and LEDs. And it's certainly beautiful looking. Man, the cinematography of the oh, show yeah. is some of the best on television. Yeah, no, it's a, it's enough to, to pull you in. And yeah, of the, was it 12 or 13 episodes? Oh, I want to say it's 12, but I could be wrong. It is, no, it's 10. Oh, 10. Yeah. Oh yeah, sorry about that. Well, five of those ten are awesome. Yeah, uh, but I, I the, the thing that also added to my disappointment was after we took our trip to Westworld, it really got me juiced about the show again. Right, but only to come into those episodes that were just kind of man, very meandering, yeah. very sort of waking life-ish at points. <laughs> I was like, come on, guys, no one wants to see a bunch of fucking people standing around debating fucking the, the like uh, the definition of what is thought, uh, uh, what is life. When there's a violent robot rebellion going on, they're uh, like, "No, <laughs> fucking shoot some robots or humans." I really don't care. I'm like, I'm kind of open to either at this point. Yeah, I'd be like the first to salute our new robot or human <laughs> overlords, depending on the situation. Total turncat. I'm like Peter Lorre. I know. Uh, <laughs> you're you're Edmund in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Just right. Sell us all out for Turkish delight. Shit, that's something you ever had Turkish delight. I have. It's delicious. It's pretty good. <laughs> well, I finally had some. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, I totally get it. Yeah, yeah, it's tasty. Uh, but there is a shit ton of extra features on this thing. They're all largely discussion pieces uh and they're better quality than their usual quality of like these kind of epks we're like they're looking at every possible angle of the show but not from what you usually expect like here's the makeup here's the you know it's more like here's this philosophical angle and then they get like members of the cast and crew together like either on a voiceover or just like film to discuss it oh wow and go like oh so what did you think about that there's a really neat conversation between the whole just just the the cast mm-hmm. where they're talking about like what their theories were as it was going because they were getting scripts like that page day, day of yeah, yeah. they didn't know either they still don't know where the show is going and they're like all their crazy theories and where they still think the show might be going and it's so bizarre to see these actors doing the same theorizing that the huh. fan boards are doing <laughs> 
Chris must have become notorious for giving away spoilers online. Yeah, yeah, no, um, I just, I don't want to know about some things beforehand. I really don't. Yeah. Most things, to be honest. Um, and I'm grateful that I, I don't go on any of the Westworld forums because I don't want to be spoiled for anything. Sure. I mean, as, as disappointed as I was overall with this season, it's still well worth watching, and I'm damn sure going to be watching the third season. Yeah, I am. You know, it's it's always that, well, I want to see where it's going to go. And the cinematography and just the quality of it alone. I mean, budgetary-wise, you're like, this is one of the best-looking shows on television. Yeah, it, it, it feels good to watch something that a network believes in enough to put that much money in. Very true. feels like I, I almost owe them my, my viewership at this yeah. point. <laughs> <laughs> that is Westworld Season 2. Check that out. Yes, that was Westworld Season 2. Let's move on, but back with John Golson to a odd little DVD documentary about something I literally knew nothing about, that this existed. And although I will certainly question it at the quality of it as a documentary, there's no question that this is a really fascinating little weird moment in time uh, of something that happened. And it's called TV TV Video Revolutionaries. Now, this group was a a San Francisco-based video collective founded in 1972 that uh, basically used this new-on-the-market affordable Sony camera to start guerrilla shooting political events. And this became a thing where they, you know, they were putting it on public access and things like that at first and their own like sort of labeled TV station and eventually became a thing that the media sort of started paying real attention to and even like buying some of their stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what makes this really interesting was that this was kind of the thing that led up to for a lot of people Saturday Night Live because they started playing with comedy, Bill Murray, uh, John Belushi, people like that were involved in this thing. Uh, and it's just a odd, like sort of like art moment in history that didn't go on very long, but was just kind of fascinating that it did at all. Um, I, I did, like I said, I really enjoyed finding out about this. I kind of wish the movie itself was better structured, but w- what do you think? Yeah, the movie plays like an educational film. It plays like something you'd watch in school to learn about a particular subject. Mm-hmm. That said, I learned a hell of a lot about TV TV, something I did not know anything about. Suddenly I felt like I had been well-educated. Um, so I liked that about it. But because of that, it's not necessarily something that I'm going to turn around and rewatch because it's sort of, it, it does not, it does not have the, the ebbs and flows of a narrative documentary. It's very much an information dump. Yeah. Um, and you really don't get to know the players that well either. You don't, you kind of don't get to know them as characters, which also might, might've helped turn this into a movie. I might revisit instead. It's very factual. It's, uh, we got into this Nixon event, then we got into this event, then we got into these uh, parties that were hosted by Iran, then we covered the Super Bowl, and it's like it's very, it's very um, historical, very point A to point B to point C to point D as far as the history of this group. I found the history itself very, very interesting, very informative. Didn't know anything about it. You can make a strong argument that they changed the way that news was was shot. In regards to, um, you know, even nowadays, news uh, outlets will buy people's footage, you know, and and this was sort of the start of that as far as like, we are, you know, we're not employees of the big mainstream media, but we have the equipment, we're out there, you know, filming this stuff. Um, It's really quite good. And I I do recommend it. And and I think people, I think people should watch it. I think it, it shows... 
a um, a moment in history and in media history that is not uh, not as well examined as some other moments. I, I do really. I think some of the high points of this are the points where they were getting into intimate political events that the regular news was not allowed into because no one was really taking them that seriously at those things. So they were kind of like, oh, this is fun. They're filming this cool event. And they're like at inauguration parties and stuff behind the scenes that no regular newsman would have been allowed in. And filming these like, you know, Washington, like higher end folks, you know, cutting loose <laughs> at these parties. Um there was like going to the Super Bowl and getting footage from the locker room that the news wasn't doing that up until this point. This yeah. was the thing that was they were the first people to do this to do like locker room interviews with the celebrities or like back in their hotel rooms and getting really candid, funny interviews with these stars that just wasn't something that the regular sports coverage was doing at all. Um, they definitely. They're later when they were trying to go a more comedic direction. I don't think it really worked out for them. And one would argue that that was kind of why ultimately the project failed is they were, they were trying something different that ended up ideas from that certainly gelled into what would become Saturday night live, I think. But, um, it is, the footage is interesting and you're right. It's just like, it is just kind of an info dump, but what is there is interesting enough to make this, especially if you're interested in media studies at all, like well worth watching. Yeah, definitely. Definitely worth watching. All right. Next up, we have a film that I don't think either one of us is going to argue is well worth watching called High Voltage. Oh, by the way, that last one, once again, was TV, TV, video revolutionaries. But uh, High Voltage is a uh, direct-to-DVD movie starring uh, megastars David Arquette and Luke Wilson, <laughs> uh, among uh, several other less recognizable types. And I kind of enjoyed this in a way like... What are you doing, movie? Yes. Where it's like a, uh-huh. it's like a rock star rise and fall movie, but it's also like a X-Man villain movie. Yes. <laughs> and it doesn't really know how to make those things work together, but I gotta admit, like, despite the really shoddy effects and the subpar acting and the weird casting, like, David Arquette is our narrator and primary character, like, burned out older rock star who's on the way down, uh, who hooks up with a, a, a new young singer, uh, and, uh, and a guy she's gotta meet cute with to form a band that actually has some legs and looks like it might go somewhere. And also she can electrocute people. Also she can electrocute people to death and is kind of getting off on it. This is, I don't know. I mean, it's one of those movies. Like, I guess you could call it so bad. It's good. It's pretty bad, (laughs) but it's not the, it's not, it's not the kind of bad that you might think that you're going to get. It's very, very L.A. It might be the most L.A. thing I've seen in a while. It feels like that kind of, like, oh, well, I have a friend with a mansion, so we can go shoot over at his place for a day. And it's all about, like, people kind of trying to get famous. Um, But then there's also a lot of, like, really dumb budget cutting crap in it, like some hilarious stuff. And it's not a spoiler, but when Luke Wilson's character dies and they display that like in memoriam screen to explain his death where it's like, it has the, the the birth and death dates and just a black and white photo of him. Right. There's stuff like that. That's really funny. Or the fact that it like the closing shot of the film spoiler 
is is a museum dedicated to this like mediocre like bar band, <laughs> right? right. That it's like an entire museum. They're trying to play off like this was like one of the most influential albums of all time. Yes. Now what happened to them? Yes. <laughs> it is not a horror film, although it flirts with being a horror film. It is not really like a band's rags to riches story either, although it flirts with that. It is just kind of it, what it is. Is it, in reality. It's a junky L.A. vanity project from a guy who aspires to be a, singer, a, a songwriter and this, the lead actress who aspires to be a singer. And they went, we could promote our music, which is a band called Hollow Body. We could promote our band by writing this movie around our band. <laughs> and then we end up with this film High Voltage, which is this weird... At best, maybe it's kind of like a Twilight Zone or Outer Limits episode, but even then, that's being very, very kind. Yeah. However, if you are a fan of like, what the hell am I watching cinema? Yeah. I think that it, I think that it kind of fills that niche because it's just normal enough to trick you into thinking that you're watching something quote unquote normal. Yeah. And then every 15 minutes, somebody is electrocuted to death. Yeah. And in weird ways and weird scenes, they try to make this very erotic, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And there's a twist at the end that's just like awful, like so awful, but the kind of awful that in this movie, you're like kind of, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you're like, I'm so proud. It went to the next level of like, just ridiculous for my entertainment value. I know, I know the, that there are people out there who relish this kind of movie and they like they like springing these kind of movies on unsuspecting friends yeah this is perfect for that this Uh, is one of those kind of movies where it's just like sit somebody down and then about 20 minutes in they're gonna be like the fuck am i watching (laughs) very 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 true i will hand it to the director he uh, clearly is capable of making a professional quality music video, which seems to be largely what this movie is is made for to sell himself as. Look, I could make a music video. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could. The music sequences are actually very professionally shot. This looks like a real band, with the exception of David Arquette. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who has no business playing a rock star in any venue whatsoever. Um, but yeah, it's like it's this weird mix of all these things that don't fit together. Someone had access to a good camera. Yeah, it's it looks nice. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not like it doesn't have that that crappy digital video feel like yeah. in that. Although the effects certainly, oh they, yeah, yeah, almost, yeah, almost no attention to quality on that, but. Damn, I don't even know, man. This is it's one of those movies watching. I was like, man, I'm gonna hand this to John. He's either gonna be mad at me I made him watch it, or he's gonna be like laughing just as hard as I was. <laughs> and it sounds like you were laughing. Just I appreciate yeah, I have a certain appreciation for um I I I thought it's it's Los Angeles flavor, this desperation to be famous permeated the film not just from the actors that were within it but from the filmmaking side as well where i mean who honestly thinks hey you know it'd be a good way to promote our music let's make a mediocre rock fantasy movie like even that has like a layer an extra layer of like meta desperation on top of what's already in the film um i yeah i i i (laughs) I was amused, greatly amused. I think I think for me the kicker was that museum scene at the end and then I was like 
slow clap. <laughs> Just like, yes. Of course, this band has a museum dedicated to them. Um, so this comes with my highest recommendation. Well, of, of sorts, uh, such as it is. Uh, that was high voltage. Next up, we're talking about a 1971 uh, period piece gangster film directed and produced by the legendary Robert Aldrich, who, of course, did movies like uh, Veracruz, Kiss Me Deadly, um, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and many others. Uh, this has never been thought of as like anywhere near the high point of his career, certainly. But it was actually a modest hit, I believe, when it came out. Uh, it is the second adaptation of the 1939 novel No Orchids for Miss Blandish that had uh, been made in Britain in 1948. Uh, the cast here... Now, if you know the name Kim Darby, it's probably because she played the, 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 the role Maddie Ross in the original True Grit. Uh, you know, legendary part to be sure. Or is John Cusack's mom in Better Off uh, Dead? That's true. It's like it's got raisins. You, you like, like raisins? raisins. Yes. <laughs> Love her that. Um, the story here is 1931. Uh, she plays a a, a Harris to a, a meat company, very rich girl, is kidnapped by three men who uh, murder her boyfriend, who appears to be kind of a dick anyway. Don't feel too sorry for him, and kidnap her. Um, and those three are ambushed and killed by another gang, <laughs> the Grissom, the, the titular Grissom gang, which includes the uh, sadly de- uh, departed recently Scott Wilson, uh, who at this time was best known to the point of feel- him starting to feel like he was typecast in his role in uh, major role in uh, Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. So, but nonetheless, here he is playing another killer, just of a very different stripe. And there. He's mentally handicapped, but he's also clearly the one that terrifies the rest of the whole family and gang. You know, they're like, don't, don't do anything to set that guy off. And unfortunately, he's kind of obsessed with Kim Darby, thinks he's falling in love with her and that this is meant to be and destiny and everything. And she's obviously deeply disturbed by all this and is trying to figure out what's the right way to play this to keep from being killed. Cause the rest of the gang is kind of like, at this point, she's just a liability. Uh, we really should kill her, but <laughs> dude, Scott Wilson over here is going to freak the fuck out if we do. And we kind of follow like the complications of, of this as this plays out of the the other gang members and what they're kind of plotting on the side. And I think I, I know you said you, this was your probably least favorite of the stack that we got this week. It, it was uh yeah, and and not for any real reason other than I found it a little boring. I okay. I, I just found it a little. It was it was probably the most difficult watch in the stack for it's, me. It's way over long at 128 minutes. I'll, yeah. I'll hand you that for, for sure. Um, and it feels like you could have easily cut 40 minutes out of this and actually made a pretty tight little, like, thrilling movie. But there's a lot of... We've already seen this scene. Why are we watching it again? Yeah, it has a lot of colorful actors. has a lot of good period detail. Um, you know, it's just... Uh, yeah, I wanted things to move along. A little quicker than they were. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, like I said, I was so into Scott Wilson's performance here, which I think is really intense, that that was carrying me to a certain extent. But every time he was off screen, yeah, you started to get distracted rather easily. And even with him, the scenes between him and Kim Darby, they kind of repeat the same scene four or five times. We're like, why are you, do you keep showing us the same thing? Yeah. This should move along. I do think this is creepy, but not. In a anything we're near a horror movie sense, more creepy from modern sensibilities. There's certain a certain amount of like this would never have been shot the way it is now 
mm-hmm. <laughs> with some of the, the 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 ways she chooses to handle her situation or the ways that we see what the movie is putting this actress through. Yeah. Um apparently very different from the original version which which has her straight up like just nothing but pure resistance the entire time. And this one she kind of like tries to play it off as if maybe she really is like interested in Scott Wilson. But yeah, I agree. It's it's faulty, but it, I still thought there was enough here, especially with Scott Wilson, uh, his performance worth checking out. And in fact, there was a uh, new interview with Scott Wilson towards the end of his life where he talks about the movie and this whole period of his acting career. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, but our last movie this week is one I just love the pieces. It's actually one of my favorite movies of the year. And I think this is one of the greatest action movies I've seen in a really long time. And that's Mission Impossible Fallout, now available on 4K and Blu-ray. John's giving me the crazy eyes, which makes me think he does not agree with me on those sentiments. It's a Mission Impossible movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, Are you, I'm, I've turned into, as a guy who did not like this series when it started, like I didn't even like the Brian De Palma one, really. I've turned into a huge Mission Impossible fan since the Brad Bird one, the fourth one. Yeah. I, I am not. Uh, I I keep wondering why I keep watching these when I don't like them. Okay, um, is kind of where I'm at now. Um, I I don't know why I keep expecting them to be the one that's really going to knock me off my socks. I just don't think these movies are for me. Okay. Uh, are you a fan of the, the recent Craig Bond films? Because I was actually—I um, I was- like some of them. I like Skyfall a lot. I like right. Casino Royale pretty good. Quantum of Solace is mediocre, and and uh, and Spectre was uh, like I don't even know if I remember anything in Spectre beyond the the fist fight with Batista in the train. I have trouble remembering like anything that happens in Spectre. Okay. Uh, I'm just curious because I had had a conversation with about these movies versus the Bond movies recently, where it was like it. Like the Bond movies feel like they've so become determined to reinvent that character utterly and completely as a totally different type of film than any of the other Bond films. Whereas this feels if they had kept going with the formula more like it was, but getting better directors and writers for it, where what it might have actually evolved into organically. My problem with these in general, with the Mission Impossible movies generally, is that when they're over, I have a tendency to kind of like the movie just dissipates in my mind. Like I have a really difficult time remembering any details about it. Now, Fallout to its credit, I do remember the plot. So <laughs> Good Lord. That, that, I want to I want to hear you describe the plot. Uh the plot is there's uh, a an organization that wants to control these uh like nuclear balls and Ethan Hunt and the IMF are trying to uh you know wrest control of these nuclear balls and there's a lot of like double crossing as there are in all the Mission Impossible movies where enemies are friends and friends are enemies um but like to the point that I didn't even remember that the guy that's in Fallout that's that has the beard the soft spoken guy with the Sean Harris is his name Yeah Sol- who plays Solomon Lane Yeah who was I didn't even his- realize like I saw the movie before that one and didn't remember that he was even in it at all certainly not even as the main bad guy like didn't remember that at all until I went and looked up information about the movie and I was like oh apparently that guy was like the main bad guy in the other one that I watched and have no recollection of it in any way whatsoever. Fair enough. Um, I just, I don't know what it is. I don't know why I, with the James Bonds, I like some of them. So there will be one occasionally, but I'm not, I'm not over the moon, like a huge James Bond fan, but there are ones that I really like. Like I said, like, um, 
but with the Mission Impossible movies, um, I don't know what it is about them that uh, I just don't. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I missed the boat on them. I feel like I, 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 I wish I could. I wish I could be specific with. This is my problem with the Mission Impossible series. That would give me so much more uh, relief than just, eh, I don't like it. <laughs> and, right. and to me, that's what it boils down to is just like, I, I'm not into them. This is, this is uh, there were things about this I liked. I liked Henry Cavill's character a lot. Yeah. Um, and it's arms. photographed well. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and then other than that, something about something about these movies leaves me just completely cold. And I don't like that, but that's the way that they are. Um, that's my relationship I mean, with the Mission Impossible What are you going to do? There's movies that everyone else loves that I'm like, I, I wish I liked it like you did. It's just not my thing. And, sure, and, and is- with these, though, I keep trying. With these, I keep going like everybody's like, no, no, no. This one is freaking amazing. And then I watch it and I'm like... It's another Mission Impossible movie, like right. it's, But uh, I also didn't see this theatrically. Yeah, I don't know if it worked. I, I mean, sometimes sometimes movies just flat out work better theatrically, and I have not seen one of these theatrically since three. Yeah, I will say that I saw I saw one and three in theaters. I did not see four, five, and six theatrically. Okay, sometimes that's just the deal. Yeah. Like we were talking, me and some friends were talking about the new Godzilla movie coming out. And when I've tried to watch Godzilla 2014 at home, I cannot get into it. And I loved it in theater. Yeah. I, I thought Godzilla was awesome when I watched it in 2014 at the movies. On my TV, doesn't work for me at all because you're left with, like, a lot of boring Brian Cranston stuff. <laughs> and, like, it just doesn't work. It may be a concession that I'm experiencing these the wrong way every single time. Mm. That the big stunts, like Fallout's big helicopter finale – or the climbing up the building in Kuala Lumpur or whatever, that all that stuff may work 110 times better enveloped on a gigantic screen in front of me. I mean, these are definitely spectacle films. There's no yeah. question about that. Uh, for me, they I've rewatched these all at home and really enjoyed them. But I think for me, what part of what comes in, A, I was a huge James Bond fan growing up. But even realizing a lot of those films are so dated and, and like, like especially the Roger Moore stuff is like, wow, this is just too corny to even sit through. Uh, I wish this was better. But I was also a huge fan of Jackie Chan. And one of the big appeals to me about these movies is that Cruz, who you'll never find anybody who's ever worked with this guy who says anything, but he is one of the most professional and kindest people you'll ever work with in films, regardless of what you may think of his religion or his relationships in the past um, uh, on a personal level. He apparently is one of those guys that like is just a pure pleasure to work with and seems to know everything about the industry on every technical level. And because he's one of those guys who pushes himself just so fucking hard. And all of these stunts are real. And it really is Tom Cruise doing them, which is something I really, that has that Jackie Chan feel where you're like, he's like, no, we have to do something bigger and crazier and, and more dangerous in each movie because we want to keep the audience happy. And I, I super appreciate that as a fan of that sort of thing. These stunts are really impressive. Even that motorcycle chase scene, that was really Tom Cruise on a motorcycle. There was supposed to be a, a thing where there was a, a truck with like, you know, attached to the motorcycle 
and it broke. And Cruz was like, well, we're just going to have to shoot it with just me on the bike with no, uh, no safety harness. <laughs> and so they just did it. And you're like, God damn, dude. There's a great interview on the, the show, the Q and a with, uh, director Christopher McQuarrie, who worked, who's worked with Cruz, like I think five times. Um, but this is the second mission impossible. He did rogue nation as well, who just goes on at length about how I, I love working with Cruz. He's literally my favorite actor in the world to work with. Um, he's basically my co-creator of these, but I also feel like I'm going to be there when he dies. <laughs> you know, it's going to be on the set of one of our films. Um, but you know, people say the same thing about Jackie Chan and yeah. it's kind of one of those, like, this is, this is the most impressive stunt work happening in movies today and done with a hyper budget. And I think it's really well shot. Um, the plots are crazy, but they do have, for me, that Mission Impossible level of fun. I, I think there's a whole gag in here where they trick someone into giving them information, and it's a wonderful Mission Impossible moment where I'm like, ha ah, even I didn't see that coming, that that was going to play out the way it did. Yeah. And there's another great moment using the masks, where it's like, okay, that's like, later on, it's like, okay, I'm pretty sure that's what's happening, but I'm not sure exactly how it's happening. That works really well. Um, I just had fun with this. I think this is my favorite of the Mission Impossibles with, a, um, uh, what do you call it? The fourth one, the Brad Bird one being my second favorite. That Kuala Lumpur uh, tower climb was pretty goddamn impressive. I kind of missed the, some of the actors from that movie. It was like, where's Paula Poundstone? I, I would pay money just to see her wear those dresses again. And, and Paul Patton? Paul Patton, sorry. Yeah. Not Poundstone. <laughs> different, very different. That would be Paula, a completely different Mission Impossible be, movie. Yeah, Paula Patton, who's like just so gorgeous, and she's so great in that movie. And also uh, Jeremy Renner, who's also really good in that film and has a good arc. I'm like, what happened to those guys? <laughs> but that one did not have really Ving Rhames till the very end of it. And now this one is kind of more the core crew. They've gotten back to that core crew. I think what makes these later movies so much better is that those first movies were just Tom Cruise movies. They, the ensemble pit bit, this is, they were not ensemble films at all. They were just Tom Cruise. And yes, there's some other characters starting with three. They've realized the TV show was an ensemble show. We need to make this more with everyone working together and being parts of this thing that fit to make it work. You can't just have Tom Cruise being off on his own the whole time. It's just not as interesting. And yeah. since then they've gotten considerably better. Um, but there's a lot of bonus features on this thing, including uh, if you watch the, the almost hour long behind the fallout, which is a series of pieces on every aspect of it, it really goes into a lot of the stuff I was talking about that was on that Q and a episode w with uh, Macquarie where there, except you get to watch it where he's like, look at this. That was real. Oh my God. <laughs> and people going like, there's a scene, that scene where, where Cruz like kind of slides down the rope into the bag. No one on the ground who was watching knew that was going to happen. So they were all like, we feel like as we, it was happening, it was like, pretty sure we just saw Tom Cruise die. <laughs> You know, just like, holy shit. Uh, it's a, it makes for a very fun series of, of like uh, behind the scenes documentaries, which I, I'll be honest, rarely is the case. And in this particular case, it is. Uh, Chris McCoy apparently is very against deleted scenes. He thinks it's very dry. He's like, you know what I, what I deleted from that, that, that film stuff that I, for good reason, I see no reason to, for anyone else to have to see it. It's like, I delete it. I'm very happy with my finished project. I never asked for a director's cut. What you see is the product I was happy with. But all that being said, there were, there was like at least one very expensive sequence they shot that's super impressive looking. They just ultimately decided it was unnecessary that is in here. And they shot they, this thing is a deleted scene montage where it's just him talking over like, and mu I'm sorry, music over a collection of 
of the stuff they cut, including that sequence, just because he's like, I was proud of the way this looked. It just had no business being in the finished product. Yeah. Project. And I was like, that's kind of a cool way to do it. A not dry way to, to see the stuff you missed. Uh, there's a look at, uh, the, the music from composer Lauren Balf, who, uh, talks about all the different pieces that come together for one of the big, uh, the foot chase, uh, across the, the buildings, uh, scene. There's the ultimate mission where to, with Cruz, just basically talking about his love of it. That's more of an EPK than anything. There's hand-drawn storyboards for a bunch of scenes, which you can advance with a remote button presses, uh, and then the theatrical trailer. Um, and this of course is, uh, available as well on 4k, uh, where uh, you've got, uh, Three different audio commentaries here, or you can, uh, uh, one with Macquarie and Cruz, one with Macquarie and the editor, and one with the composer, and then there's an isolated score track, which I always like it when movies do that. Kind of cool to put it on where you're like, I don't really want to hear this movie, I just yeah. want to kind of have it, I like the soundtrack, but want to have it in the background while I'm working, <laughs> you know? Um yeah, and that is it. That was a Mission Impossible Fallout. So I wish you enjoy- you got as much joy from these as I did. I really did. I don't know, man. I, I just I don't know. I, after I finished watching this, I went back and rewatched four and five. I was like, yeah. <laughs> I've seen each of them once. Yeah, I've seen each of them once. Um, and every time I give it a shot, and every time I'm just like, yeah, that was a another Mission Impossible. Just not. Uh, you know, some people don't like uh, corn. Some people don't like peas or beans. You don't like Mission Impossible. Movies. I don't like Mission Impossible movies. Fair enough. That, but you know that. But it sounds really unfair because it makes it sound like I hate them, and I wouldn't want to convey that either. I just, um, I just end up kind of looking at them, and and I rarely feel involved. But you know what? I, I'll say this: uh, I will make an effort to try to see whatever the next one is. I'll make an effort to try to see it on the big screen, and then that'll end and, up being probably the crap. And one. we'll see if that <laughs> we'll see if that is what I'm missing in these is the theatrical experience. Fair enough. Uh, so, out of curiosity, I wasn't sure what was your favorite movie of the movies we looked at. This I week? think the one that I so this is a, this is kind of odd because there's stuff in here. I think the one that is the must see is TV TV. Okay, but I don't think that that's necessarily the best movie movie. I, but I, I think if I were going to tell someone watch one of these, it would be that one because you will walk away with more wisdom and knowledge than you did when it will you make you a better person. Um, high voltage is definitely my guilty pleasure in this in this stack. Other than that, I would say probably Gosford Park was the one that uh, the one that really surprised me the most. And and honestly, like you know, you talk about Downton Abbey. I've never watched an episode of Downton Abbey, but there was stuff in Gosford Park where it was like. I want to know more about that guy. Yeah. Like, for instance, Charles Dance's character, who is doesn't get a... Everybody makes an impression, but some of the characters make just enough of an impression to make you go, I I wish this was, like, slacker, and, and that he walked away and, like, drove home, and we got to, like, follow him and see what this was all about. Sure. Like, I kind of wanted to do that with sort of all of the characters. I kind of wanted to get to know them a, a little bit more. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, I, they're all very colorful, and we're given more than, enough information about them to make them kind of intriguing. And and I would say one the the kind of creepy Ryan Felipe. I was like, what is this guy's deal? Yeah. At the end of the movie, I'm still like, I still don't feel like I know what that guy's deal is. But he has an interesting arc throughout it, and gets a sort of comeuppance, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but that that would those would be my my three kind of picks in different categories. The TV TV would be the one I tell you definitely see. 
Gosford Park was my favorite, and High Voltage uh, <laughs> deserves a place uh, in your hearts and minds this holiday season. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to put that quote on the box <laughs> yes. when they do the re-release in Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like the new room, says John Golson. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, that's it for Digital Always. Thanks for listening, guys. Use, please click on those links uh, to buy your stuff this Christmas. And uh, I'll see you soon with another show with Aaron.